welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Hey, we're back together again. Yay. This is fun. Drinking wine. Oh, yeah. Chit-chatting. Drinking some canned wine. And and it's delicious. Oh, it's delicious. It's amazing. This is hashtag not an ad, but no. we're drinking some Lasiaris Waves mm-hmm. Rosé. And it's... It fantastic. is uh oh, delicious. Like uh oh, I'm gonna be yes. able to drink a whole can of this and then some. Yes. Yeah. that's that's really your tagline for the last couple of weeks. I think. <laughs> you know what? It just came out of me one day when <laughs> I was talking about something that was, or like I ate something delicious, or yeah, and I just went uh oh, <laughs> like my face <laughs> fell, and I was like uh oh, I'm in trouble, and it's just that's just been it ever since that's good if you were a sitcom that could be <laughs> that could be my my tagline tag yeah like uh oh and then everyone laughs, laughs. Clap, laugh oh track. my god that's lauren's famous famous catchphrase catchphrase thank you <laughs> i've had three sips of this wine yeah. uh-oh <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a couple of things about this episode uh we always joke that we you know write a book report you know, we do a book report every episode. Yeah, absolutely. This week, I literally am doing a book report. Oh, she's holding a book right now. I am holding a book right now. Um, the other thing is one of the legacies that I want to come out of this podcast is yeah. I want our listeners to learn about a badass lady who got shit done. Yeah. And did whatever she wanted and didn't care what other people think. Yeah. And those are my favorite kinds of episodes we do. Great. So They're- that's what I that's what tonight is. I'm so excited. So today's episode is called L'Ultima Dojoresa, Peggy Guggenheim. So right off the bat, I have here, Out of the Century, Confessions of an Art Addict, the autobiography of Peggy Guggenheim. I'm so excited. With a foreword by Gore Vidal. Wow. <laughs> Were he they friends? Her. He oh. knew her. Um, but she is a truly fascinating person of the 20th century. So I will be encroaching upon some of your art episodes and Please. referring to some of your art episodes. And I would like, yeah. I, you know, feel free to jump right in if if I start talking about a person and you feel like elaborating about them. I mean, I have never not jumped in and elaborated that's on true. things. So, that's, so, but thank you, know you for what? the that's invite. That's very true. Um, <laughs> yes. So we're starting in 1898. Mm, okay. All right. So Marguerite Guggenheim, known as Peggy, was born on August 26, 1898 in New York to an extremely wealthy Jewish family. Mm. Her father, Benjamin Guggenheim, was one of seven brothers of Swiss-German provenance who, along with their father, Meyer Guggenheim, made a fortune from smelting metals, especially silver, copper, and lead. Mm. Uh, Peggy's mother, Florette Seligman, came from wealthy banking stock, a family line best described as eccentric. And I was like, what does all that mean? And so I'm looking more into it. And it sounded like some of the people in her family had some real OCD, like they'd repeat Uh-oh. things multiple yeah. times and knock on a door frame 18 times oh, in a no. row before they enter. You yeah. know, some things like that. So mm-hmm. some of those things passed down through her sure. family line. Um, Peggy described her childhood as guilt-edged. Uh-oh. And though her family lived like royalty, she and her two sisters, Hazel and Benita, were often left to themselves. Um, their mother was kind of neglectful, and her philandering father was often absent. Oh, boy. Um, Peggy wrote, quote, My childhood was excessively unhappy. I have no pleasant memories of any kind. <gasps> oh. 
So Peggy doted on her father, loved mm. him, you know, because he didn't I mean, pay much attention to them. Yeah. When he uh, died, uh, she was just 13 years old. Oh, wow. And she suffered what she described as a nervous breakdown. So Benjamin Guggenheim, he was in Paris with his lover mm. at the time. Sure. He decided to return to America in April 1912 after okay. having spent the last year away from his family. And the ship that he was supposed to return back to America on had broken down. So he opted to cross the Atlantic on the RMS Titanic. Oh, that's a shame. On April 15th, Benjamin Guggenheim lost his life when the ship sank in the North Atlantic Ocean. He did, um, and he was known, uh, several people made note of this. He gave up his place in the lifeboat to oh, women wow. and children. And uh, he waited for his moment of death in a tuxedo, smoking cigars and drinking cognac on board. Oh, man. And his valet stayed stayed behind with him too. So he, at least he wasn't one of those jerk balls like Billy Zane. Exactly. You know? like Billy Zane. Mm -hmm. And also, what a way to go out in style. Yeah, he was you know? like, well, oh, might as well enjoy a... Yeah, so his mistress got on a lifeboat. And, oh, sure, you know, okay. Yeah, he said bye. Au revoir. And he drank his cognac. Yep. So that, <sighs> and his body was never recovered. Yeah. Uh, so her father had also lost money in his businesses. And so the family was relatively wealthy, uh, but they did feel very poor in relation to the other Guggenheims. Um, so Peggy said, quote, I never considered myself a real Guggenheim anymore after that. Mm. So rejecting her upper class roots, she became a rebel. Uh, she shocked her family by shaving off her eyebrows, oh. and she decided that she was just going to embrace a new persona as the black sheep of the Guggenheim family. Um, one thing, when she was a late in her late teens, she always hated her nose, mm. and she decided she wanted to be re-sculpted. So she had read some book that... You know, referred to like a petal-tipped, beautiful, upturned flower nose. Sure. And she found a surgeon in Ohio that was like supposed to be known for doing this. He botched the operation, <gasps> and he still charged her a thousand dollars. Oh my and gosh! And for the rest of her life, she had what she called a potato nose. Aww. So, um, she, Peggy was not the great beauty of the family. Apparently, both of her I mean, sisters were. I would I would say more conventional beauties, but mm -hmm. Peggy at least like she had she had gumption. Yeah, you know? it's not everything. Beauty isn't exactly. everything, and it fades anyway. So exactly. So um, she became financially independent due to the inheritance she received when she turned twenty one. This money came from like her grandfather on her mother's side because oh, okay. like her dad had kind of mm, you squandered it, kind of squandered. Yeah, his mm. family side of the money. The Guggenheim family took care of her family, um, but the inheritance she got was from her mother's side, mm -hmm. from her grandfather there. So she got $2.5 million oh. then. Uh, that's equivalent to about $37 million today. Oh, so not... From her grandfather. Like, her e grandfather died, and she got $37 million. So clearly nothing to sniff at. Absolutely. So, so because of this, Peggy mm -hmm. was able to continue her search for a different lifestyle. And um, to assist in the war effort during World War I, she got a job in 1918 helping new officers buy uniforms. Mm. Um, she had an aviator fiancé uh, who apparently he was waiting to make his fortune in the loose-leaf paper business in Chicago. <laughs> but um, something to the effect of she, like, went to Chicago to meet his family and, like, was so disgusted with Chicago that, like, <laughs> his family was like, you shouldn't marry her. <laughs> She was uh, like, this place this is, a, this is worse than I expected. <laughs> Whoa, you live here? <laughs> Sorry, Triviality Brothers. Pretty much, but, pretty <laughs> but like, 
this what What? this cesspool of a city (laughs) Uh, according to her autobiography she had multiple fiancés during the great war uh, but their engagements clearly never lasted long Mm. so 1920, war is over. She began working for her cousin, Harold Lieb, as an unpaid assistant at the Sunwise Turn, which was a midtown Manhattan bookstore. It was also one of the first woman-owned bookstores in the country. So the Sunwise Turn was a hub for avant-garde literature and socialist ideals and also featured small art exhibitions of emerging artists. And because of her time there, she found a new love, Europe. Mm. At the end of 1920, Peggy moved to Paris, where she explored her interest in classical and Renaissance art, saying, quote, I soon knew where every painting in Europe could be found, and I managed to get there, even if I had to spend hours going to a little country town to see only one. Uh, she became close <laughs> friends with avant-garde writers and artists, notably Marcel Duchamp, who became her lifelong friend and mentor, later stating that he taught her everything she knew about modern art. Mm. She was friends with scores of famous people, including James Joyce, Ezra Pound, Juna Barnes, and Isidore Duncan, who called her Googie Pegenham, which I thought was really cute. <laughs> that's Googie cute. That's a, yeah, that's a cute nickname. Yeah. Um, at the age of twenty-three, <laughs> oh boy, I should. I'm gonna slap an explicit tag on this episode. By the way, <laughs> I should have said that up front. At the age of twenty-three, uh, Peggy wanted to lose what she called her burdensome virginity, and she became involved <laughs> with the Dada artist Lawrence Vale, who she described as the king of Bohemia. So for Peggy, sex and art were inextricably linked. Sure, yeah. Um, she wrote, quote, I had a collection of photographs of frescoes I had seen at Pompeii. They depicted people making love in various positions. And of course, I was very curious and wanted to try them all out myself. Wow, okay. And so, apparently, like, in this autobiography, like, she, this girl does not give an F who's reading what. <laughs> like, she is, she just tells it like it is. Good for her. She tells so many stories. It's so rambly. Like, Oh, I love um, it. It's, she like refers to a person's name and you're like, did you ever tell me who that was? <laughs> Wait, who like, is this? I'm not sure. So anyway, apparently like Lawrence Vale made a pass at her and she was like, all right. And he was like, sure. what? And then she told him about the frescoes and like, apparently he was like, okay. And then she's like, I apparently wore him out really. But like, oh my just, God. He just like, just bloop, tells you everything. Anyway. Oh, I love her. She's, she's fantastic. So she and Lawrence Vale, they got married in 1922 and they had two children, Sinbad and Pegeen. So no. Sinbad's full name is Michael Kedrick Sinbad Vale. He was born in 1923 and their daughter Pegeen, her full name is Pegeen Jezebel Margaret Vale. She was born oh, in 1925. No. So their marriage was marked by intense conflict and hmm. plenty of physical abuse by <gasps> Vale. He was an abusive alcoholic who beat her. Um, she said, quote, when our fights worked up to a grand finale he would rub jam in my hair what? but what i hated most was being knocked down in the streets and oh my God. quote once he held me down underwater in the bathtub until i felt like i was going to drown what? uh he liked fighting with her in public he liked smashing her items and throwing her items out the window um it was awful he was awful to her this is why one you've never heard of this guy and two why you should never get involved with an artist, least of all a surrealist, because surrealists, as you remember from my episode, do not care about anything. They're all nihilists. They're all like, what is life? It does not matter. And then they pull shit like this. Yep. Yeah. And they feel like they can get away with it. Yep. Garbage person. He was a garbage person. Let's just say that. But she wrote about him for like, you know, 400. Sure. Of course she did. Yeah. 
Um, so they got divorced in, in 1920. They're, sorry, their marriage dissolved in 1928. They didn't like get the divorce to granted until a couple years later. But, you know, Peggy, she's ready. She's spry. She's in her 20s. Can't keep she, a good girl down. She fell in love with the writer John Holmes, and the two hmm. began traveling together. Even though, like, he had a common-law wife. This is another weird digression there. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, she wrote, quote, we must have gone to at least 20 countries and covered 10 million miles of ground. And according to Peggy, when she once confessed to John that she'd flirted with another man, he made her, quote, stand for ages naked in front of the open window in December and threw whiskey into my eyes. Another. Just great. Just, uh, what Peggy. The what? It, she's going to show that she has some great taste in art, but some terrible taste in men. Yeah. Um, So in 1934, Holmes, who was a severe alcoholic, died suddenly during a routine surgical procedure to reset a broken wrist. And she was like, she thought that she'd caused this because on the train, like back to see him, she was like, well, I hope he dies and I never see him again. And then like, he died died, in surgery and she she was like distraught and whatever. But (laughs) whatever. Peggy, bounce back. She then moved in with Douglas Garman. And when that relationship, too, came to an end after several turbulent years, she found herself at a loss for an occupation. Quote, since I had never been anything but a wife for the last 15 years. Yeah. Tragedy in Peggy's life wasn't only confined to romantic relationships. Um, her sister Benita died in childbirth, and the other Hazel lost two children in a terrible accident. Oh, no. Do you want me to tell you what this terrible Please accident is? Please tell me okay. about the terrible so accident. So according to the New York Times, and I read the whole article. Oh, my God. In October 1928, her sister Hazel brought her four-and-a-half-year-old and 14-month-old sons, Terrence and Benjamin, with her to visit a cousin who lived in a penthouse at the Surrey Hotel in New York City. They were waiting on the rooftop deck and, quote, Mrs. Waldman was seated on a bench or on the low parapet with her back to the street. The younger boy was in her arms. Terrence, jealous of his brother's favored spot in his mother's arms or anxious to see more of the view, was pushing and pulling, trying to climb into his mother's lap. And in the scramble, one of the children went over the edge. <gasps> Mrs. Waldman made an effort to catch him, and the other child also fell. Both of her kids fell what? like 16 stories. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's the worst thing. It was very tragic. And there are people out there that are like... Maybe she threw them off. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's awful. Because... That's enough of a freak accident that people are like, that couldn't possibly be true. That uh-huh. both of them went uh-huh. over. <sighs> and, and the fact that she also didn't immediately like kill herself. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or like in the panic of it, just like jump over herself yeah. to like save her kids or whatever. Yeah. It was awful. Oh my God. Anyway. Sorry. Bring sorry, it, everybody. Bring it real down, but I'll bring it back up. Okay. Don't worry. So. Peggy Guggenheim, she began thinking of starting a publishing company or maybe like an art gallery. You know, she has money. Why not? And with the inheritance she received after her mother's death in 1937, she opened the Guggenheim Jeune Gallery in London in 1938. Aided by Marcel Duchamp, the gallery's first show featured 30 of Jean Cocteau's drawings. And Mm. the gallery held Kandinsky's first solo exhibition in Britain, exhibited the works of Wolfgang Pollen and Yves Tongay, and held group exhibitions of sculpture and collage featuring folks like Henry Moore, Alexander Calder, Jean Arp, Pablo Picasso, Georges Braque, Raymond Duchamp Villon, Kurt Schweiders, and Constantine Brancouche. Wow. So Peggy began her practice of purchasing at least one artwork from each exhibition she hosted, building her own collection. How clever. The first work she bought was Jean Arp's Shell and Head from 1933, of which she said, quote, I fell so in love with it. The instant I felt it, I wanted to own it. She also freely explored her own sexuality, later claiming in her dishy autobiography that she had more than a thousand lovers in Europe alone. 
Yes. Get it, Peggy. So the gallery was a critical success, but it lost money its first year. And as a result, Peggy thought a contemporary art museum might actually be a better route. Well, there. So she began working with art historian Herbert Reed on a plan to develop a museum of modern art in London. Mm. In 1939, she closed the Guggenheim Jeune and traveled to Paris with with, uh, Herbert Reed's list of artworks that they hoped to have for their proposed first exhibition. Mm -hmm. She was undeterred by the war that had you know, broken out. Oh. And Peggy decided, quote, to buy paintings by all the painters who were on Herbert Reed's list. Having plenty of time and all the museum's funds at my disposal, I put myself on a regime to buy one picture a day. Wow. So she was aided in her quest by a number of friends who advised her. She had plenty of friends in Paris, plenty of art, you know, connections. Um, Though art world sexism followed Peggy wherever she went. Mm -hmm. Uh, Famously, one day she walked into Picasso's Paris workshop seeking to buy a picture. The great master ignored her for several minutes before dismissing her with, Madame, the Laundry department is on the second floor. That little rat. Can I tell you? For more on him, check out episode 79. What are you? Some kind of Rembrandt? Part four, Picasso's Hot Flames of Knowledge. (laughs) It's a very long episode title, but it is very good. Thank you. Uh, So by 1939, Peggy had acquired 10 Picassos, 40 Ernst, 8 Miros, 4 Magritte's, 3 Man Rays, 3 Dollies, 1 Klee, 1 Chagall, and... You know, among uh, others, which in <laughs> what's so mind boggling to me, like today, that is uh, a, a world class <laughs> collection on its own. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you might also feel like checking out episode 144, Degenerate Art, if you don't recognize some of those names I just said. It's very good. Many artists and art dealers were eager to sell whatever works they could and flee the invading Germans. Mm -hmm. So she was able to create, quote, the nucleus of one of the great modern art collections of the world with just $40,000. So Peggy's buying spree actually, (laughs) and this is like a very awful thing to think about, but her buying spree actually saved many works from falling into the Nazis' hands and being labeled degenerate. Absolutely. Um, When Paris was invaded in 1940, she remained in the country trying to make arrangements to preserve her new collection. With the advance of the German army toward Paris, she was forced to return to New York. She asked the Louvre for help, uh, hoping she could leave her artworks in their protection for the duration of the war. But the museum declined, declaring that her collection was not worth saving. Well, it was probably good because, you know, they got pretty close to the Louvre and the Louvre had to pack up and hide a bunch of stuff. So. For more on that, watch The Monuments Men. Yeah, which is a fine movie. I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's historically accurate. Yeah. But it wasn't, I mean, I, it didn't blow my mind. Well, yeah, but it's a story that a lot of people don't oh, know. Oh, absolutely. No, I totally agree. Anyway, anyway <laughs> uh, we're just thinking about our time when we saw the film in the theater and we were the youngest people there and Ugh, everybody else decades. was very old and, and didn't turn their phones off and was whispering to each other the whole time. It was very strange. More like strange. Uh, stage Sorry. whispering to each other. <laughs> <laughs> it was nuts. It was horrible. Anyway, so Peggy came up with a plan how to ship her collection back to the U.S. Uh, under a pseudonym because sure, yeah. her last name is Guggenheim. Um, under a pseudonym as household items. She packed them with casserole dishes <gasps> and things like bedding and curtains. Oh, wow. Um, to ship everything back by boat. Mm. So it made it. In 1941, she returned to New York along with German surrealist painter Max Ernst, who sure, would not? become her second official husband. Sure. 
In the 1940s, many European artists immigrated to New York, fleeing World War II in Nazi Germany. In 1942, Peggy opened her Art of This Century Gallery mm -hmm. with sections devoted to surrealism, kinetic art, cubist, and abstract art, establishing one of the first international galleries in New York City that mixed American and European art. Mm. At the gallery's premiere, Peggy famously wore one earring made for her by Calder and another by Tangay to express her equal commitment to the schools of art she supported. That's cool. Uh, Frederick Kiesler designed the innovative gallery to create a wholly modern experience. So some paintings were actually hung on universal joints, which allowed viewers to like turn the paintings oh, wow. and experience like different angles of light and like see them at different things. That's kind of cool, actually. Creating a very intimate relationship between the viewer and the work. And Kiesler created created an unusual lighting design that occasionally plunged an entire gallery into darkness. Um, his furniture acted both as seats for gallery goers as well as easels for paintings. It's really oh, okay. cool when you see pictures of this. It's like a curve, like some of like one of the galleries is like all curved and oh, has sure. like wood built into it. So in addition to presenting works by established artists like Picasso, Brock, and Brancouche, um, Peggy's shows included pieces by up-and-coming artists like Robert Motherwell, Clyford mm. Still, and Jackson Pollock. Peggy became an early patron of Pollock, providing him with a monthly stipend. His oh, first wow. commission, which was called Mural uh, from 1943, which was a massive 160-square-foot painting for her townhouse, as well as Pollock's first exhibition. Peggy would later name her discovery of Pollock as her greatest accomplishment, mm. ranking higher than her collection itself. Oh, wow. Um, in January and February 1942, the Art of the Century Gallery hosted a juried show titled Exhibition by 31 Women, which was the first exhibition solely devoted to women artists. Cool. The group of artists selected represented 16 nationalities and all but one were under the age of 30. Uh, Georgia O'Keeffe was invited. She she and Peggy knew each other and she, yeah. um, Peggy also knew Alfred Stieglitz pretty well. Um, O'Keeffe just declined to participate, noting in a letter that she did not want to show as a woman artist. Huh. You know what? That's That sounds like Georgia, that she would want to like <laughs> not like label yeah. herself, yeah. you know? But for more on her, that's uh, episode 49. Sometimes a flower is just a flower. That's very good. So though not a commercial success, Exhibition by 31 Women was positively reviewed, but it was not devoid of chauvinism. A reviewer from Time Magazine refused to cover the show because he claimed there were no worthy women artists. Uh, I'm sorry, sir. Yes. History has shown that you are wrong. You are wrong. Check out many of our past episodes. Sure, yeah, I mean, um, of course. So this exhibit did lead to some unintended, unexpected personal consequences for huh. Peggy. So one of the artists was Dorothea Tanning, with whom Max Ernst fell in love, leading oh, no. to his divorce from Peggy in 1946. Peggy said in her characteristic ironic way, quote, I realized that I should have only had 30 women in the show. <laughs> That's... That's yeah. a really good joke. Yeah. Yeah. She was great. Uh, so her marriage to Ernst, again, also abusive. He stole her oh, clothing. He what? beat her. And like, it was kind of an open secret that he said that he only married her as a career move. Ugh. Um, she Ugh. wrote, peace was the one thing that Max needed in order to paint. And love was the one thing I needed in order to live. Mm. As neither of us gave the other what he most desired, our union was doomed to failure. So again, while Peggy may have had great taste in art, she mm. just had poor taste in I'm men. I'm sad for her on that end. Yeah. But again, she had like a thousand lovers. Yeah, yeah <laughs> she's doing okay. And she's got money and a beautiful <laughs> art collection. She's doing all right. Yeah. So in June and July of 1945, um, her gallery again hosted an all-women show called The Women. 
featuring 33 artists, some of whom had been featured in the previous show. And among the new artists of the show was Louise Bourgeois. <gasps> Get out. Episode 102, Don't Be So Bourgeois. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Check it out. It's very good. So in 1946, Peggy published Out of the Century, Confessions of an Art Addict, her autobiography that created something of a scandal due to her honest and revealing <laughs> recount of hundreds of affairs and sexual encounters that she'd had with various writers Good and artists. Her. She slept with anyone who intrigued her. Mm. Um, her most famous liaisons included Brancouche, um, Samuel Beckett, Yves Tungay, wow. and Marcel Duchamp. Um, Jackson Pollock was one of the few heterosexual acquaintances with whom she didn't have an affair, but he also reportedly said that you would have to put a towel over <gasps> Peggy Guggenheim's head to have sex with oh her. Oh my God. Which is a particularly vile thing to say, given that she was his most ardent and committed patron. Yeah. Like maybe keep that in the old brain box. He was a drunk though. <laughs> I mean, Jack had his own problems. So, <laughs> so Peggy's family, they were dismayed. Uh, sure. Her wealthy uncles tried unsuccessfully to buy up all the copies and the critical response was equally dismissive. So it was a very gossipy. Sure. Um, people called it like a self mortifying book <laughs> that almost determinately assassinated her own character, but she didn't care. No. Um, when asked by an interviewer, how many husbands she had, Peggy replied, do you mean mine or other people's? Oh, mm-hmm. what? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, behavior that might be considered rakish in a man, however, was completely unacceptable of in a woman of age 50. 50. Oh, How yeah. Dare like she? At the precipice of death. How dare she? <laughs> I will point out now uh, that, Peggy, that Peggy was not all that great of a mother to her two children, mm. Piggy and Sinbad. Like when she and Lawrence got, Lawrence Vale got divorced, like she made sure that or she like fought for Sinbad to stay with Lawrence because she didn't think it would would be fair if she got custody of both children. Mm. And so she had Pegeen, but like then she traveled all the time yeah, and was like always sleeping around with all these other goose. But I mean, I'm not shaming her, whatever, but she like wasn't a very attentive mother, let's sure, just yeah. say. Um, and again, just tragic. Um, Pegeen, who herself was an artist, suffered from neglect and lifelong depression. And she later committed suicide on her fifth attempt at age 42 oh, in 1967. No. But she um, she was an artist too, and mm-hmm. you can still see some of her works, um, especially at um, Peggy Guggenheim's museum too. Mm. But anyway, back in the 1940s, sure, Peggy wanted another fresh start. She closed her gallery in 1947 and moved to Venice, which she called oh, the city of her dreams. Mm. In 1948, the Venice Biennial invited her to exhibit her collection, which marked the first time the works of Pollock, Marth Rothko, and other American artists had ever been seen in Europe. Uh, she bought the Palazzo Venier de Leoni, the unfinished Palace of the Lions, um, an unfinished one-story 18th century building on the Grand Canal where she resided the rest of her life. Um, so in 1749, the Veniers, who are a noble Venetian family, commissioned architect Lorenzo Boschetti <laughs> to design a five-story palazzo perched on the Grand Canal. Um, extenuating circumstances hindered the project's construction and the sure. single-story palazzo was left unfinished. So it building apparently changed hands several times before Peggy made it hers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, you know, notably this like unfinished palazzo on the Grand Canal. I see. In Venice, she became known as Lutima Dojoresa or the last female doge known <laughs> mm-hmm. for her 
Oh, you would love her fashion. She wore these butterfly sunglasses that were designed by Edward Malkarth. Um, She wore them everywhere. She navigated the city in her private gondola, which was like one of the last private gondolas in in Venice also. Um, And she just had dogs, dogs and dogs and dogs. Tons of dogs. Um, So her home was a hub for visiting writers and artists. And she also promoted the works of emerging Italian artists. Upon entering her palazzo, you would be greeted by a large erect penis. Oh. Um, Peggy planned it that way. Uh, it was a sculpture by Marino Marini. Um, there was a man astride his horse, excited by the pure joy of living in Venice. Sure. The penis was detachable. <laughs> what? Legend holds that Peggy took it on daily sojourns in her private gondola to signal that she wasn't home. It was stolen at a raucous party late one night and had to be permanently welded back into um, its rightful place. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you got a, if you got a movable penis, it, you're going to get that. You're going to get it. You're going to get somebody Someone's taking it. Take it. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> I mean, buyer beware, you know, <laughs> buyer beware. So in 1951, Peggy opened her home as a museum to the public. And in subsequent decades, she also loaned her collection to various museums in Europe and the U.S. Um, so Peggy was one of the links between European and American modernism. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite her successful life as a collector, and though she had a number of liaisons with young Italian men, she was frequently lonely, writing in a letter, quote, God forbid my ever getting too attached in my life to anyone. So far, everyone I loved has died or made me madly unhappy by living. Life seems to be one endless round of miseries. I would not mm-hmm. be born again if I had the chance. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, Peggy also kept every piece of press ever written about her, whether it was good or bad. And she would circle and underline phrases and write in the margins of memories from certain events or exhibitions. Mm. Peggy continued collecting art until about 1973. Um, In 1962, Venice bestowed upon her an honorary citizenship. Um, And she just lived in her palazzo with her 14 Lhasa Opsos. Um, (laughs) She died on December 23rd, 1979 at age 81 due to Mm. complications following a stroke. Following her death, her ashes were tucked away in a corner of her sculpture garden. Mm. And today, in addition to visiting the groundbreaking figure's grave, visitors to the Peggy Guggenheim collection can also pay their respects to the other important Guggenheims, her 14 late Lhasa Opsos. Cappuccino, Pagin, Peacock, Toro, Foglia, Madame Butterfly, Baby, Emily, White Angel, Sir Herbert, Sable, Gypsy, Hong Kong, and Salida. So wait, she I, had a daughter and a dog named, named Pegine. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> the more about her legacy. So Peggy Guggenheim returned to New York in 1969 when the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum, founded by her uncle, invited her to show her collection. She said of the occasion, quote, I was thunderstruck. The entire art movement had become an enormous business venture. Mm-hmm. Only a few persons really care for their paintings. Um, her model, emphasizing patronage for avant-garde artists and advocacy for their work, provided an alternative to the market-driven art world. Mm-hmm. She said, quote, I'm not an art collector. I am a museum. <gasps> Ooh. In 1970, she donated the Palazzo Venier de Leoni to the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum, followed by the 1976 donation of her collection with the proviso that it remained in Venice and kept whole in the Palazzo. Oh, okay. This ended up causing a nearly three-decade-long legal battle from 1992 sure. to 2018. Uh, Peggy's descendants sued the foundation, uh, claiming mismanagement, alleging that Peggy's paintings were stashed away, not exhibited, mm. that uh, more than 100 new works were added to the collection mm. that they shouldn't have been, and that the collection was crassly commercialized. In essence, they said that the collection became less Peggy and more Solomon. Mm, okay. 
Um, art critic Alison McNearney wrote of the Peggy Guggenheim collection, quote, it is not only one of the premier collections of modern art in the world, featuring over 300 works by over 100 of the most influential artists of the 20th century, but it has also played an integral role in turning Venice into a mecca for contemporary art. Peggy's showing at the Venice Biennial influenced the rise and prominence of the international exhibition, and today the Palazzo Venier de Leone permanently houses the U.S. pavilion of the Venice Biennial. It is also the most visited Italian museum of modern art and the second most visited museum in Venice. Cool. Um, Guggenheim was an early model of the contemporary art celebrity. As one critic noted, even her sunglasses made news. Mm-hmm. Um, so in like 2014, there was an Italian company that launched a limited edition Ira line inspired <sighs> by her butterfly sunglasses. Um, And she's continued to be a cultural presence. She was portrayed in the Hollywood film Pollock, um, Mm. Lainey Robertson's 2005 play, Woman Before a Glass, um, and in the 2015 documentary, Peggy Guggenheim, Art Addict. I love that. And Gore Vidal, like I mentioned, in the foreword to Confessions of an Art Addict, said, quote, Peggy is the last of Henry James's transatlantic heroes. Daisy Miller with rather more balls. I... Love that. And can I tell you, what a righteous bitch. Like, that is the kind of gal I want to have a drink with. Absolutely. And she would, and she w- she's an open book. Oh, yeah. You'd be like, She'll tell, tell me about, about when she traveled to this guy, and this guy was dumb, and this guy was cheating on this person. And like, like that's how this book goes. It's very rambly. Like, oh, yeah, we went to visit my cousin, and it turns out he was boinking this other lady. But anyway, then I had dinner with the lady, and you're like, what? <laughs> It's, I love it. I might have to borrow wonderful. that from you. Yeah, you yeah. know, what? I would consider it a beach read. Oh, okay, yeah. So we're coming, like coming frothy. beach read, fun. Yeah, have yeah. A, have a have a nice cold beverage and and just like read just about read gossip. About, read about the twentieth century uh, art world. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so I just wanted to also go over when you when you hear Guggenheim, you're like, mm-hmm. what are we talking about? Yeah, sure. there's a lot of Guggenheim museums, yeah. okay? So the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum is in New York City. It opened to the public in October 1959. Um, it's a white spiral structure designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. It is also mm-hmm. um, considered an inverted ziggurat. And inside, the museum brings together several private collections, including the non-objective paintings that belong to Solomon Guggenheim, who established the foundation that runs the museums. Okay. Uh, more than a million visitors go there each year to the Fifth Avenue Museum, and Peggy referred to this place as, quote, my uncle's garage, that Frank Lloyd Wright thing on Fifth Avenue. <laughs> so she wasn't a fan. Okay. Yeah. But the Peggy Guggenheim collection is in Venice, Italy. Um, so it's much smaller in scale than its New York counterpart. Sure. But the Palazzo houses an impressive selection of modern art. Um, its setting and well-respected collection attracts more than 400,000 visitors a year. Wow. Um, it reflects Peggy's interest in a variety of modern styles and schools from cubism to expressionism to surrealism. And it's home to major works by Marcel Duchamp, Rene Magritte, Piet Mondrian, and Jackson Pollock. The museum has three parts. So there's Peggy's works, which are the bulk of the museum, mm-hmm. um, the works of the Schulhoff family that are also housed there, and then the National sculpture garden and there are also uh, from time to time temporary exhibitions there's the Guggenheim Museum Bilbao which is oh, in yeah. Spain it's best known for its building I would yeah. say so mm-hmm. Bilbao Guggenheim is um, an astonishing architectural feat designed by Frank Gehry and it has a series of curved interconnected shapes clad in shimmering titanium the interior is designed around a large light filled atrium with views of Bilbao's estuary and the surrounding hills of the Basque country it opened in 1997 and has provided a home for large scale site specific works and installations by contemporary artists and mm-hmm. um, um, Bilbao makes a, a point of supporting the work 
of Basque artists, as well as housing a selection of works from the foundation's extended collection. Cool. And fourth, the Guggenheim Abu Dhabi Museum yeah. in the United Arab Emirates. So it's still currently in development, but it's mm-hmm. also designed by Frank Gehry. So the new museum will be situated on a peninsula at the northwestern tip of the Sadiat Island, adjacent to Abu Dhabi in the UAE, surrounded on three sides by the gleaming waters of the Arabian Gulf. Mm. The museum's collection will encompass art in all mediums um, produced around the world from the 1960s to the present and will be a catalyst for scholarship in a variety of fields, chief among them the history of art in the Middle East in the 20th and 20th first centuries so Great. that's forthcoming uh, the guggenheim yeah. abu dhabi yeah yeah I loved that. That was great. Yeah. Oh, I learned so much. I don't think I knew a lot about Peggy Guggenheim beh- besides her art collecting. Uh, so that was great. She's, mm. You gave me that dish. Yeah, that there's and there's so much more in this. Like Oh, I'm sure. Again, yeah. I joke that we do a book report every episode and, you know, but sometimes this was a book report. Sometimes you're working on your book report like you know, 20 minutes before you go to record a podcast and <laughs> you might not have gotten to put all of the dish in that you, that you wanted to, but sure. I, I would say check it out. And also Lisa Vreeland's um, documentary, uh, Peggy Guggenheim art addict is another really great resource. Yeah, I met Lisa Vreeland. She did, did her mother's documentary, oh. um, Diana Vreeland. And, um, uh, yeah, I met her at a, um, costume society, Oh, uh, oh, yeah! It well. was in, it was in Midtown Manhattan. I mean, what can I say? Um, no, it was a yeah, it was like a conference yeah. thing. Yeah, cool. it was great, very cool. I mean, I met her very briefly. Like she was signing her books, and I walked up to her and I was like, "Thank you so much for your talk." And she was like, "Oh, thank you." She like shook my hand and did the two hand thing. Oh, see, very then warm. you know that she liked you. Yeah. Well, at least she was you know somebody who could turn it on for long enough. Where I wouldn't give a two hand handshake to. Well, you know, just anybody. That's true, but maybe she's somebody who's just—that's what—that's her default, you know. Or maybe she like you're like maybe she's nicer than you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the other thing is I've got these big giant cow eyes, and people look at them and they say, "You seem trustworthy," you know. <laughs> people look at me and they go, "Can I ask you for some restaurant recommendations?" <laughs> that happens to me on the street. I'm like, you know what? I'm not offended. No, yes. because you know what? Go three bucks. No, here's the thing. You know why? Because you have great restaurant recommendations. <laughs> They're not wrong. Okay. So for my quiz, I was like hemming and hawing. Like, I don't know. Which, I was like, I don't want to do another quiz about art. We talk about art all the time. <laughs> Some people don't care about art or whatever. I don't know why you're listening, why you're an hour into a podcast about an art collector if you don't you're care like, about art. I don't care about art. But anyway, um, so Peggy's gallery was called Art of the Century. Okay. Um, this quiz is called Start of the Century. This is a throwback quiz all about the year 2000. (gasps) Question one. We didn't all plunge into the anticipated apocalypse with the Y2K bug, but we did get the rare treat of experiencing a century leap year date on February 29th, 2000. During what year ending in double zeros is the next century leap year? Question two. I don't know if you were writing a lot of letters with the Russian alphabet back in 2000, but within two cents, how much did a postage stamp cost in the U.S. in the year 2000? Question three. In May 2000, more than 10 million Windows computers were infected by which computer virus innocuously downloaded when opening an email that might have been from your grandma or maybe your Uncle Barney? Question four. 
That summer, we were all glued to our televisions as Kathy Freeman lighted the Olympic cauldron, Michael Phelps made his Olympic debut, and Marion Jones won five track and field medals. Which city hosted the Summer 2000 Olympics? Question five. What's the name of the best-selling video game console of all time, which was released in Japan in March 2000, later hitting the rest of the world that fall? Most main entries in the Grand Theft Auto, Final Fantasy, and Metal Gear Solid series were released exclusively for this console. Question 6. Debuting in April 2000, this magazine showed the same subject on every single monthly cover until September 2020. Which Hearst Communication magazine is this? Hint, its title shows up multiple times in this question. Question seven. Relax, you got this. According to Billboard Magazine's top hot 100 songs of the year 2000, what was the number one song of that year? Question eight. The highest grossing stop motion animated film ever was released in 2000, earning more than $224 million worldwide. Which film is this? Produced by Ardman Animations, which still holds this record today. Question nine. The first black person to receive a Pulitzer Prize passed away in December 2000, though she earned that award more than 50 years earlier. What is the name of the celebrated poet and author best known for works like Annie Allen and A Street in Bronzeville? And finally, a four-parter, question 10. Did these pop culture things happen in 2000? Just tell me, 2000 or not? Uh, J-Lo wore that Versace green dress. The first gay male kiss on network primetime TV. Guns N' Roses released their sixth studio album, Chinese Democracy. And Tom Green's Lonely Swedish, parentheses, the Bum Bum song, Hit number one on MTV's Total Request Live. I'll give you about a minute to think about it and then be back with your answers. What a year. What a shitty year. <laughs> um, okay. All right. Okay, I want you to bring it back. I want you to I'm think going about back. I'm going like, back. I'm f- wearing some hair mascara. I've got a butterfly clips a in my hair. Top? Do you have some I of have that like top. silver shimmer powder that yes. we just like put on with our fingertip? Like right up like oh, this? Oh, yeah. Boop. I would... Did I had you have glitter. a sticker that you put on the corner of your eyes? Yes, I had you did. glitter, har- glitter yep. stars that uh-huh. I put on the glitter corners stars. of my eyes. Yes. Um, I was not allowed to wear a tube top. Oh. <laughs> Dave, 
Dave Tag was not letting me get shutting anywhere that near. Down. Yeah, shutting that down. Did you have big jeans? Were we wearing big jeans in two thousand? I because wasn't. Later, we wore tiny jeans. Yeah, it was. I think it was tiny jeans because I remember I had to wear. I couldn't wear normal underwear, and I had to. <laughs> tuck my I had to buy long tank tops and like tuck them into my pants because they were so low I would like my whole ass would come out when I would sit down and you've seen my ass I got a badonk now that's a word from the 2000s (laughs) when they were like mom jeans are back I was like oh thank god (laughs) finally I can regular underpants I can put I can put on my granny panties and just live my life you know that's what we've all been. Uh, uh, if we only knew. <laughs> all right, Lauren. All right, I'm going to try. I'm going right, to do my best. All right, quiz all about the year 2000. Question yeah. one. We didn't all plunge into the anticipated apocalypse with the Y2K bug, but we did get the rare treat of experiencing a century leap year date on February 29th, 2000. During what year ending in double zeros is the next century leap year? The next century leap year. So... Um, I'm going to say 2100. The answer is 2400. Whoa. So a oh, century, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. A century leap year is a leap year in the Gregorian calendar that's divisible by 400 without a remainder. A regular ass century year <laughs> is not a leap year because it's divisible by, unless it's divisible by 400. Oh, sure, yeah. So 2000 is the first such year to have a February 29th since the year 1600, making it the oh, only second such occasion since the Gregorian calendar was oh, introduced. Okay. And the next one will occur in 2400. So we will be long gone by yeah. then. You know what? Good. I don't want to see 2400. But, but you got to experience it. Yeah, Ooh. I did. Yeah. Ooh. Do you feel different? Mm, I do feel <laughs> sparklier (laughs) all right question two i don't know if you're writing a lot of letters with the russian alphabet back in 2000 but within two cents how much did a postage stamp cost in the united states in the year 2000 i i don't even know how much a postage stamp costs now is it 25 cents (laughs) she's laughing at me i mean i just buy a, a sheet of them and then we use them for Forever. two years. You know, like, <laughs> I send birthday cards. That's all I do. Um, Within two cents, how much did a postage stamp cost in the year 2000? I'm going to say 17 cents. So what the fuck? <laughs> Why are you laughing at me? What did you think it was? I don't know how much a stamp is. <laughs> all right. In the year 2000, a postage stamp, regular postage stamp was 33 cents. <laughs> You know what I'm? Th- you know what I'm thinking of? My past life. <laughs> yeah, that must have been it. it must have I was been like, it. What year is this? Again, all I, right. When was, when was the last time I bought a stamp? A single stamp. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, there are 33 letters in the modern Russian oh, alphabet, which is what that I was. Wasn't get what that. else is 33, Lauren? Well, let me tell you. The, year the number of innings played in the longest professional baseball game in history, which was a 1981 minor league game between the Rochester Red Wings and the Pawtucket Red Sox. What? Longest, that's the longest uh, professional baseball game in history. Cool. 33, also the namesake of the private club, Club 33, located in Disneyland's New oh, Orleans right, Square. Yeah. 33 is the number of days of Pope John Paul I's reign, who was one of the shortest in papal history. Mm-hmm. And 33 is also Jesus's traditional age when he yes. was crucified and resurrected. See, I would have I gotten that. I didn't know how to write that into the I know, I know. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. I, <laughs> Just I imagine that would deep. be... Real deep. <laughs> 
We're, we're you writing deep. a letter to your grandmother about Jesus' crucifixion, <laughs> but within two cents. <laughs> See, that works. All right. Anyway. Sorry, I revised my no, question. No, it's okay. All right, question three. Lauren. Yes. In May 2000, more than 10 million Windows computers were infected by which computer virus innocuously downloaded when opening an email that might have been from your grandma or maybe your Uncle Barney? Uncle Barney? Um, hmm. I know that's a clue. <laughs> but but, but to, a clue to what? Who's to say? Um, uh, I feel like there was one that had a worm aspect to it, like the the centennial worm or something like that. Ooh, that's a fun name. Yeah, that's a fun name, isn't it? Um, is it? Um, you know what? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna guess a random old TV show. I'm gonna say it's the Mister Ed. Uh, the Mister Ed. Virus. virus. Okay. Uh, this computer virus is known as I love you, sometimes referred to as love bug or love letter for you. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. All caps. One word. I love you. Wow. Uh, anyway, the worm inflicted damage on the local machine of your computer, overwriting random types of files, including your office files, image files, and audio oh, files. And then after rewriting it, the virus would hide the file inside oh, the computer. No. So it would also send a copy of itself to all addresses in your Windows address book used by Microsoft oh. Outlook. So this made it spread much faster than any previous email worm. The outbreak was later estimated to have caused... 5.5 to 8.7 billion with a B dollars oh my in damages God. worldwide. Wow. Yeah. I have a vague recollection of hearing about that, but yeah. we were not like a big computer yeah, family. Yeah, I think you know? the year 2000 might have been a little... I'm pretty sure I had a little a early for, account. Yeah, for yeah. our parents to be opening email viruses on the computer. But yeah, for sure. I was, yes. Yeah, I was Artemis underscore moon at <laughs> juno.com. So... Don't wow. email me there. Wow. Don't email me and there. And at Juno. Wow. I know. Wow. Um, I know. Yeah. So it was sometimes referred to as the love bug, but it is known as the I love you virus. I love you virus. Okay. Yep. All right. Question four. That summer, we were all glued to our televisions as Kathy Freeman lit the Olympic cauldron. Michael Phelps made his Olympic debut and Marion Jones won five track and field medals. Which city hosted the summer 2000 Olympics? Um, was this Atlanta? You're laughing at me. That's not, it's not an unheard of city. <laughs> it's Atlanta did host the Olympics at some point. All right. You're right. Atlanta was 96. Okay. See, I'm only four years off. What was the next one? The Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> that was 2016. We made dips oh, and wow. sat in your living room. Yes, we did. That was great. We had a lot of fun. I just found that picture actually just the other day. Yeah. That was fun. Um, okay. <laughs> I didn't memorize the cities like you did. Uh, Summer Olympics. Oh, was it Athens? Why are you laughing at me? Because <laughs> it wasn't Athens. Well, I don't know. <laughs> All right, Lauren. The Summer 2000 Olympics were in Sydney, Australia. Yeah, I mean, I didn't watch them. I was 14. <laughs> You didn't watch the no, Olympics? I didn't watch the Olympics. I don't even know how we're friends. <laughs> so this was the second time the Summer Olympics were held in Australia and the second time in the Southern Hemisphere. The first was when it was held in Melbourne in 1956. Ooh, that was pretty good. So the closing ceremony of this Olympics included Greg Norman hitting soft golf balls into the crowd, Paul Hogan as Crocodile Dundee, and the bananas in pajamas, and Elle McPherson walking her runway on a float resembling a camera. 
Julia, do you remember bananas and pajamas? Vaguely. All I know is walking down the stairs. Yeah. And they were walking down in pairs. Coming down in pairs. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we were at the age where bananas and pajamas were really going to like charm us. But no, I but remember that song I was being the everywhere. I was watching the Olympics. I stayed up. I stayed up watching the 1996 Atlanta Olympics, and I was only like 11 years old. <laughs> Tags did not watch the Olympics. What? I'm just saying it. Just we didn't really care that much. <laughs> this explains a lot. <laughs> um, anyway, as I mentioned, the question, Marion Jones, she won five medals there, mm-hmm. but she was later stripped of all of her medals after mm-hmm. admitting to steroid use. Lauren, question five. What is the name of the best-selling video game console of all time, which was released in Japan in March 2000, later hitting the rest of the world that fall? Most main entries in the Grand Theft Auto, Final Fantasy, and Metal Gear Solid series were released exclusively for this console. Um, is this the PlayStation? Full title. Um, the... PlayStation 3? PlayStation 1? PlayStation 2? PlayStation 2! <laughs> wow, I'm so good at this. You're so good. <laughs> It's the best-selling video game console of all time. Um, It can play audio CDs and DVD movies and is backward compatible with almost all original PlayStation games, which was a big deal at the time. Oh, sure, yeah. And they actually, like, continued producing this for, like, more than a decade. Like, they were were producing Mm. the PlayStation 3 and, like, still producing the PlayStation PlayStation 2 because people loved it so much. All right, question six. Debuting in April 2000, this magazine showed the same subject on every single monthly cover until September 2020. Which Hearst Communication magazine is this? And hint, its title shows up multiple times in this question. Oh, uh, that's O Magazine. Yes! Oh, same. Oprah Magazine. Um, the September 2020 issue featured the late Brianna Taylor, the young woman killed mm-hmm. by a police in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, it's the O Magazine's final monthly print edition was December 2020. Now it's an online only magazine. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, most magazines are kind of on their way out. Yeah. R.I.P. Publishing? Yeah. How are you going to write a rom-com these days? I know, right? Somebody doesn't work for a magazine. (sighs) They're just going to be working for like, I don't know, Instagram. (laughs) They're just going to be Instagram influencers. I used to read Lucky Magazine. Do you remember Lucky? I was obsessed with Lucky. That was my favorite. And Jane, Jane Magazine. That's that's a throwback. I was always the Us Weekly. Mm-hmm. It's my fave. All right, question seven. Relax, you got this. According to Bilbert Magazine's top hot 100 songs of the year 2000, what was the number one song of that year? Now, is the relax, you got this a, a hint? <sighs> well, now I'm not relaxed. I'm stressed out. In, out. In. Okay. <laughs> out. All right. Okay, is it breathe? Yes! Oh. <laughs> by who? Um, uh, breathe by, um, oh, uh, is it? Yeah, I can feel you breathe. I can feel you breathe. Um, um, oh my God, she's married to another country star. Um, I can see her face. It's not Trisha Yearwood. Nope. It's, it's uh, she's beautiful. She's blonde. Um, she's saying this kiss, this kiss. Uh, what's her name? 
I mean, I got the question right. You did. It's by Faith Hill. Faith Hill. Damn it. Yes. I love her, her beautiful voice. That was the song of 2000. Oh. All right. I'm going to tell you the other ones. Okay. Number two was Smooth by Rob Thomas and Santana. I hated that song. Number three it was, was everywhere. Maria Maria by Santana and the product Ugh. G&B. I don't think I even know that song. I We had the album. I remember my dad really Ugh. liked it because he was a Santana fan. And it, Ugh. All those songs. Number four was I Want to Know by Joe. I don't, I don't know, know that's that song. Yeah, yeah. But number five was Everything You Want by Vertical Horizon. Oh my and God. That I is will, a 2000 song. That is a bop. I will listen to that on the way home. I love tonight. Vertical Horizon. Yeah. Loved it. All right. Question eight. The highest grossing stop motion animated film ever was released in 2000, earning more than $224 million worldwide. Which film is this produced by Ardman Animations that still holds this record today? Is that Chicken Run? It is Chicken Run. I love Chicken Run. The only thing I retain from that is, I'll be going on holiday. See, the, and I think I say that probably every time I go on vacation. You know what? I'm going on holiday. You know what I remember from that movie? Is, what? I don't want to be a pie. <laughs> <laughs> That's the line. That I, it's probably from the same damn chicken. It probably. <laughs> Chicken run. The plot centers on a band of chickens who see a rooster named Rocky as their only hope to escape the farm when their owners prepare to turn them into chicken pies. I don't want to be a pie. (laughs) (laughs) It was great. It's a great movie. It's cute. All right, question nine. The first black person to receive a Pulitzer Prize passed away in December 2000, though she earned that award more than 50 years earlier. What is the name of this celebrated poet and author best known for works like Annie Allen and A Street in Bronzeville? I don't know either of those titles. I don't remember the title of the poem that you do know by this person, though. You've talked about her before. Is it We Real Cool? Is it? Is it? Um, shoot. I'm going to look that up. I'm going to look it up. Okay. Because you might be right. Well, even if it's even if I'm right, I can't remember her name. Oh, well, that's not good. It is. The, is it the she same? She did write her? the poem, Shoot. We Real Cool. Yes. Um, is her first name Audra by any chance? No, this no, is not Audra Shoot. Lord. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lo- Audra Lord is later. Mm-hmm. Poop. God. This was published in her 1960 book, The Bean Eaters, which mm-hmm. was her third collection of poetry. And you know what? I did a question about her. You did. Shoot for... Um, for, for our boy JP, uh, for our friend JP over at the Geek Bracket, you should listen to it. I should listen to it because then I would remember what question I wrote. I don't remember who was it. Gwendolyn Brooks. Gwendolyn Brooks. God damn it! <laughs> you idiot, Sorry. Lauren. Sorry, Gwendolyn Brooks was a lifelong resident of Chicago, which Peggy Guggenheim thought was a dump. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Gwendolyn was appointed Poet Laureate of Illinois in 1968, and she held that position until her death. She was also named Poet Laureate Consul... (laughs) Nope, that's an English word. (laughs) She was also named the Poet Laureate Consultant in Poetry (laughs) to the Library of Congress um, in 1985, and um, she also became the first African-American woman inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Mm. Also, Gwendolyn Brooks appeared on a postage stamp in 2012, it was a forever stamp, though, so don't worry. You don't have <laughs> okay. to know how much. I don't have to know how much it was good. All right, finally, question ten, a four-parter. Okay. Did these pop culture things happen in the year two thousand? And I'm not trying to be like ticky tacky, like, well, it was uh, actually on December thirty first, nineteen ninety nine. I'm not. I'm yeah, not yeah. being like that. Okay. Did these pop culture things happen in two thousand? Are they say? Are they in the year two thousand or not? Okay. Uh, J Lo wore that Versace plunging green dress. I'm going to say two thousand. 
Yes, yes. that was at the February 2000 Grammys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, the first gay male kiss on network primetime television. I'm going to say 2000. Yes. Okay. It was in 2000. It was on the season three finale of Dawson's Creek between Jack and Ethan. Oh, okay. And apparently that's the very same episode that, that um, blessed this world with the crying Dawson. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Apparently. Good. And not like in, not, not like because as a result. of it. Yeah. yeah it was yeah. just like in he the same episode. He didn't see two guys kissing and then burst into tears. <laughs> no. no. James Vanderbeek is a friend to everybody. <laughs> He's a very open-minded man. <laughs> All right. The third one. Guns N' Roses released their sixth studio album, Chinese Democracy. I'm going to say no. All right. The answer is no. Yes. Chinese Democracy was supposed to come out yes. in 1999. It was recorded, re-recorded in the year 2000, but it was delayed another year in eight years and then didn't even mm-hmm. come out until the year 2008. And apparently that was a big punchline for, you know, almost the, all of the aughts was yeah. like, well, when's Chinese, uh, when's Democracy, Chinese coming Democracy coming out? And then finally, <laughs> is this the year 2000 or not? Tom Green's, Lonely Swedish, parenthesis, the Bum Bum song, hit number one on MTV's Total Request Live. Do you remember Tom Green? Do you remember when we collectively as a nation were like, yes, he should be famous? What? I don't know if you and I were part no, of that. No, I was, that. I, I abstained from voting on that one. Oh, <laughs> oh Engineer Josh. I Engineer like, Josh is, is taking, it, yeah. Bring it. He yes. is taking yes. responsibility. This, this was inspired by something that Engineer Josh told me today. Oh, so, I can't yes. wait to hear what that was. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say, yes, that did happen in 2000. All right. I regret to inform you that Tom mm-hmm. Green hit our airwaves in 1999, August 1999. Okay, yeah. Um, so apparently um, the Bum Bum song hit number one on MTV's oh, uh, t- Total okay. Request Live, but it like was immediately retired and like people were like, oh, well, okay, I guess. And it's because it wasn't a live show, everybody. <gasps> they pre-taped most of TRL and like the next week's, like segments didn't have anything about Tom Green oh, ready really? to go. So they were like, you got to retire this song, man. Yeah, like, yeah. We and can't. now it's retired. And now it's retired. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Blew my mind when I found out this wasn't a live show. You mean Carson Daly wasn't standing over Times Square from 3 to 5, 5? p.m. That every right. weekday? I don't know. I mean, he is not a man just chock full of charisma. So he probably needed a lot of, you know, taping to be done. So when Carson Daly joined the Today Show in like the <laughs> 2010s, I wrote a letter to NBC and said, please get this man off my television. She wrote a letter. As she like, wrote a letter. I was like, he is boring. Super boring. He doesn't know what he's saying. No, he doesn't know anything. He has no personality. None. I was like, here are seven other people that you should have on your show instead of Carson Daly. But you know what? How he's is still, this, he's there in the second hour every every day? How is this man famous? I don't know. How, I mean, like, what does he bring to the table? Literally nothing. He's he not had a big head. He's got a big stupid head. <laughs> he's got a big dumb head. He's not conventionally attractive. He his voice is annoying. Yeah, he doesn't have Speaks anything. In a monotone doesn't have anything to say. No, is it because he dated Tara Reid? Was that it? They were, I believe, engaged. Oh, yeah, that's point. true. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I don't know. Tara Reid. Poor Tara Reid. Uh, <laughs> not a friend of the show, I will say. Carson we, Daly. Carson Daly. You Tara are not Reed. allowed on this show. The year 2000. Just really, <laughs> really smacking us in the face. All right. Well, that's the show. That was great. There we go. Peggy Guggenheim, art addict. Check that was her great. out. She's terrific. 
She's like um, the uh, the oh, <laughs> the boy. less anti-Semitic version of Alma Mahler. Oh yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, we'll call we'll, yeah. we'll call that. Yeah, I mean, it's not gonna be the title of the show, but no, I, I would no. go with that. Yeah. yeah. All right, great. Thanks, Jewel. That was awesome. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. And we hope that we brought that Julius quiz really brought you back yes. in a big way. Yes. What, what, what did the boys do in the year 2000? What were they wearing? Uh, were they wearing, uh, were they wearing little Oh no, they necklaces? had the frosted tips. They had frosted tips. Were they like, wearing puka shell necklaces in the year 2000? Absolutely. I'm sure they were. Hemp? Yeah. Hemp was Hemp involved. was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the big jeans Ooh, were like definitely. like Quicksilver. Like yeah. Quicksilver and Roxy were yes. like what the girls. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was definitely a thing. Uh, Bless it. Those anyway. were times. Um, thanks so much for listening, guys. Yeah, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.